Okay, so Luke, the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be reading the first 10 verses of Luke 17. So while you go and find Luke 17, I want to give you a little bit of the context and catch you up on, on what's happening 2,000 years ago. Luke is awesome. He's a doctor. He's very accurate. He's very descriptive. And he wants, by, the, by the, the Holy Spirit, he's driven and compelled to share with us intimate things that the disciples experienced. I can only imagine what it was like for Luke to gather this information with Peter and Mark and all of those. And, and he is about to, in these ten verses, we are going to see uh, Christ disciple. So in Luke chapter 15... We see Christ speaking all the way through to the beginning of chapter 17 and, and the 10 verses that we're going to consider today. And it's all in red except for a couple spots. That's because Jesus is the one talking. And Jesus is in a, a parable mood. He goes from one parable to another. And in Luke 15, he's talking the parable of the lost coin and the celebration of her finding a lost coin. And comparing that to the celebration in heaven when a sinner repents. And then the parable of the lost son. We call this the prodigal son. And how the father eagerly watched for his son to return. And the prodigal son, once he gets good and hungry, looks up to heaven and he repents. Right? And then he returns and the father receives him with a big hug. And these are all times, and again, heaven celebrates because the sinner repented. These are times of joy and celebration. And I don't know about you, but when I want to share times of joy and celebration, I generally don't want to share those stories in front of people who don't like me. But yet Jesus is sharing these stories in front of people, the same people who would want him killed. And the people who are ridiculing him. In fact, Luke 16 verse 14 Jesus just got done confronting the love of money. And verse 14, it says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard these sayings, and they derided him. And isn't that interesting? So Jesus is talking to a pretty big audience. And not every time when it says that Jesus is talking to his disciples, it doesn't always mean he's only talking to the twelve. It could be many others who have decided to follow Jesus that he's talking to as well. But in this section of Luke 17, it specifically says the apostles, which is not only the general audience of disciples who follow Jesus, but the apostles are the 12. And he gets pretty specific, and they get pretty honest. And it's pretty cool for us. Hopefully we can be encouraged by that. But it's interesting to see that all that Christ is talking about to this huge audience, he now kind of turns and addresses his 12, his disciples. There could be more disciples listening, but we know that his 12 are there, and he wants to disciple them. And guys, it's my hope that you get discipled today, tonight. That's my hope. The worst thing about teaching is that I'm a sinner, and as I study God's word, I'm like, oh man, how can I teach on something I personally fail at way too often? And it brought me to such joy to come to the end of this and realize, oh, you know what? Jesus taught the disciples, and he's teaching me, 
And there's a good purpose in the end. There's redemption in the end. And so hopefully we see redemption in the end of all of this. And I want to speak to a few hearts because I know it's Wednesday. And I know for a lot of people, in fact, for me, for many years, I did a job that I just truly didn't enjoy. And then on Wednesday night, my wife and I would come and I'd be like, sweet, church, I love church. And opening the word. And it just kind of was an escape for me from work. And maybe, maybe that's you today. I want to encourage you that Jesus has a plan in your work. And we're going to talk about it today. And hopefully you're encouraged by that. And then the uh, tired, weary spouse. I want to talk to you. Because Jesus has some encouragement for you today. And I hope you're encouraged by what Jesus has to, has to say. To those of you who are in a relationship where you find yourself constantly having to re-forgive somebody. So I think there might be a tired spouse in the audience. And then, tired mom, tired dad. Kids constantly doing the same thing over and over again. And and they're repentant and you're constantly having to forgive. The Lord has some comfort for you in this as well. And then, um, yeah, those of you who are working for somebody who in your heart of hearts, you're like, I can't believe that I'm earning this person money. And you feel like this is the worst. I don't know if, you've, if you ever have or currently have a boss who is really selfish, uh, living for the world, living a sinful life, and you find yourself working for them, and you're earning them money, and you're like, is this what I was supposed to do with my life? I hope you find some encouragement because God has something bigger than that for you, even right where you're at. And then lastly, I want to take you down the road to the higher path we call dignity. Jesus is setting us apart to lead a dignified life. So let's go to Luke 17, starting in verse 1. Then he, Jesus, said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. Amen. I'll see you later. Okay. I mean, that's a pretty pessimistic perspective. Or is it? It's actually just absolutely true. We live in a fallen world, and offenses come, and it's impossible that they won't, actually. And now, somewhere in my mid-40s, I can tell you that I'm trying to exercise a perspective of when an offense comes, to not be surprised or taken back by it. Jesus prepares his disciples by saying, hey, it's impossible that no offenses should come. But he says, but woe to him through whom they do come. In verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. There's parallel scriptures to all of this in um, Matthew uh, chapters 18 and 25. Uh, A lot of the scriptures that you read in there are paralleled right here. And Christ is talking about causing a little one to sin, causing a child to sin, causing them to, uh, however, in any way, shape, or form, commit a sin. And Jesus says, It would be better for the offender if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend these little ones. But Jesus is also talking about everyday offenses. 
as, we'll, as you can see in the parallel scriptures I just mentioned. But causing a child to sin is a troubling thought, isn't it? And we all try, and as we raise our kids, we, we all try to raise them in the right way. But in some way, shape, or form, it is not possible for me to be perfect at that. It's not. And Jesus, he compares causing a little one to sin to you'd be better off just dying. Because what, what happens when we bring sin into the, a child's life, we're bringing death in, right? Why does death have authority? Because of sin, right? And so Jesus is really straightforward. In these scriptures, often you will see Christ speaking in hyperbole. We'll see it in a minute. But this really isn't hyperbole. Hyperbole is when Christ said, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Is Jesus really saying we should run around plucking our eyes out? No. He's showing the gravity of the sin, right? He says it's better for you to go into heaven maimed with one eye than to go to hell with two eyes, right? And so Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. That's the kind of black and white that we see coming out of our Lord when he's referring to sin. And in here, in this case, he's just saying, oh, you're, you, you weren't, you're better off not living than to live and cause children to sin. Those are harsh words. So I'll leave you on that comforted note. Okay, verse 3. Don't worry, guys. The comfort is coming. Take heed to yourselves, Jesus says. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Okay, this is a command. We see a command in here. Take heed to yourself. So you and I, at the end of the day, we are only accountable to the things that we decide to do, the directions we decide to go, the thoughts that are running through our own mind. We can only take heed to ourselves, right? I cannot be accountable to the things other, other people are doing or thinking or saying. But the Lord is saying, so take heed to yourself. Take heed to yourself. And if someone you know, someone close to you, offends you, rebuke them. And then if they ask forgiveness, forgive them. This is really on par with the, the whole theme of Scripture. Now, what he's not saying is you have the right to not forgive until they come in repentance. Jesus is saying, take heed to yourself Make sure, as far as you're concerned, when an offense comes, that you have the character and integrity enough to go and confront someone. Lovingly confront somebody, and when they repent, you forgive them. Now, should they not repent, you still need to forgive. Right? Forgiveness, from our perspective, is not conditional. Actually, what Jesus is saying is, do for others what God does to you every day. Every day. I started this by saying, man, it's tough to teach on something I'm failing at. I see my own failure in. But you know what's the great news? Is I see what the Lord is commanding me to do is because that's what he's doing for me all the time. And so when I sin, the Lord confronts me. His Holy Spirit convicts me. A neighbor, a brother, a sister, my wife will confront me. And then, by the grace of God, I, I, I ask forgiveness. 
and I'm forgiven. So when I go to the Lord and I say, yes, you're right, Lord, I've sinned. Will you forgive me? He forgives me. Right? And he's saying, take heed of yourself. Make sure you do that. Why? Because what we receive, we're expected to offer, right? We're expected to give as well. So Jesus is talking about forgiveness. Not unusual for the Lord to talk about it. But verse 4 is where things get a little difficult. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Jesus, I believe, wholeheartedly is referring to what I, I call preemptive forgiveness. Like, hey, you're going to forgive this person because they're repentant and they're coming and you're going to forgive them. And by the way, should they continue to do this multiple times a day, be ready to forgive them again. The expectation that somebody should have of me when they come and repent, they should expect me to forgive them. I'm commanded to do it. And you know what's really cool about that? If we live in a, with the mentality and have a reputation of forgiving those who come in repentance, then people are more likely to come and repent, aren't they? You're a safe person. Jesus is saying, be a safe person to apologize to. Be safe. And then when people come to you, they know, hey, I can confess what I did to my brother, and I know he'll forgive me. He's faithful to do that. I can confess to my sister what I did, and she'll forgive me. I know it. Rather than, I don't dare approach that person with what I did, because they are going to lose it, right? And Jesus is saying, have this frame of mind preemptively, Already be prepared. It's already decided before it happens. When somebody comes to me and says, I'm sorry, I'm going to say, I forgive you. Already decided. That's a peaceful way to live, isn't it? Peaceful way to live. And it, it, and it says, forgive the repentant one. Well, it's only the repentant one who's going to come and ask for forgiveness, isn't it? If they're not repentant, they're not coming anyway. Amen? Okay, so repentance is a fruit of the Spirit. When you forgive somebody who's repentant, you're cooperating with what the Holy Spirit's already doing in them. And so when they come and they say, hey, I'm sorry, I see the sin, and I regret it, and you know what? I'm really sorry that I did it yesterday, and the day before, and the day before, and I see the sin, and I need your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? They don't do that out of the power of the flesh. They're not doing that because they learned that in high school or college, right? Congress didn't pass a law encouraging them to repent. I guarantee you. What happened? The Holy Spirit told them to do that. And Jesus is saying, be ready to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And when you see the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart like that, jump right in and join the Holy Spirit in what he's doing. That's pretty awesome. You know what else is awesome? Is when I feel that conviction and I'm like, wow, the Holy Spirit's at work in me. That's a powerful revelation. So the devil wants me trapped in guilt. He wants you trapped in guilt. You did it again. How could you possibly look her in the eye and even pretend you're sorry, right? That's what the devil, that's his game. 
That's his M.O. But you know what? I can say, you know what? The Holy Spirit is bringing that repentance. And I'm going to obey the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to accept the gift of forgiveness. That's what it is. That's the Christian walk. And so Jesus, just I, I just love it. He's addressed this huge audience. Half of them don't like him. He doesn't care. He's like, all right, disciples, let's, let's talk this through. Let's walk this through. I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you the, the high road, we call it nowadays. Okay. So preemptive and repetitive forgiveness. Because guess what? When they keep coming back for forgiveness, what you're seeing is the faithfulness of the Holy Spirit convicting them and continuing to do so. Continuing to do so. And we've got to be the fruit of God and be able to listen to it and say, yep, hey, guess what? God forgives me every time I do the same thing I thought I'd never do again. And he's done it year after year. Okay, so cooperate with the Holy Spirit and see where the Holy Spirit's at work and forgive. I love that the, the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the end result is forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. The, the way of the Lord, it's just absolutely amazing. All right, I should be done in about five minutes at the rate we're going, so that must be a fruit of the Spirit too. Okay, so uh, Luke 17, verse 5. The apostles are about to get honest about how difficult what Jesus is talking about really is. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that's easy, but he's still commanding us to do it. Verse 5, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. There's no way I can do this. It hurts when you're, when you're in a tough relationship and they keep sinning, you keep having to confront, they keep repenting, and you keep forgiving. Eventually, you're like, I can't do this anymore. That's the point we can get to. And we thank God that he is faithful the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the same God who forgave me yesterday, who forgives me today, will forgive me tomorrow. But this is about earthly relationship back and forth. And the apostles, it says, so those are the guys who've been hanging out with Jesus. They've witnessed all these miracles over a three-year period. Increase our faith, they said. They did something right in that they recognize they are not equipped to do what Jesus is saying. And that... Jesus is equipped to equip them to do it. But they're wrong in saying that it, this is a matter of faith. And Jesus takes faith out of the equation. It's pretty interesting. Jesus takes faith out of the equation. He's, so the Lord said, verse 6, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Okay, well, that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. So faith the size of a mustard seed, I could have the power to overcome the laws of physics. <laughs> That's a pretty big leap. So this is hyperbole. Guess what? I have never met anyone who could say to a mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it obeyed them. Never. Does that mean I have never met someone with even faith enough the size of a mustard seed? Is that what Christ is saying? Should we split the mustard seed into multiple pieces? 
A tenth of a mustard seed's faith is enough to forgive someone who sins against you. But a whole mustard seed's faith is enough to defy the laws of physics. Is that what Christ is asking us to do? No, of course not. What he's saying is any faith at all is incredibly powerful to the point where you could overcome the laws of physics. Walk on water, right? And it's not about the faith. It's about duty. It's just your duty to do it. And the apostles kind of have a little bit of an excuse in their back pocket if it's a matter of faith. Ah, I can't forgive this person. Not enough faith. Only a tenth of a mustard seed here. Sorry, I can't do it, right? There's a little bit of a backdoor escape from accountability if it's about the measure of faith. If it's about the measure of faith, then you and I could decide whether or not we have enough faith at any given point in time. And guess what? Now it's on God because he's the one who gives faith. Right? And that is not what Jesus is going to allow the apostles to do. Some excuse, a lack of faith excuse, justifying why I won't forgive that person who's hurt me time and time again. So Jesus says, oh man, even a mustard seed's worth can do, you name it, move mountains, right? That's the other reference. Say to this mountain, get up and move that way in the mountain, right? That's the, ref, the other reference Christ uses in, in respect to faith. So we're about to go into uh, a little part of Scripture, verses 7 through 10, and then we'll probably jump back into Psalm 15 and, and take a look at things. But in order to walk through these verses, we've got to enter into the cultural context of Christ's time. The verses we're about to talk about don't really match our mentality. And so I'm going to read these verses and then eat my beard. And then we're going to read the verses and we're going to talk about the culture for a little bit before we delve into the meaning of the verses. So verses 6 through 10. So the Lord said, if you, oops, sorry, 7 through 10. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was our duty to do. Kind of rough words. In our culture, that sounds kind of harsh. But in Christ's culture, the servant-master relationship was very, very simple. Master says, servant does. And that's it. In our culture, we can look at this and we can say, wait, this servant has been out plowing and tending sheep, and he's done with the day's work, and he comes in, he's entitled to overtime at this point, Right? What kind of master wouldn't say, hey, I want to make sure you're hydrated, have a seat, I need to drink 30 ounces of water, take this hydration tablet, got to keep you healthy because we don't want any workman's comp claims 
that's our, that's our culture today. The servant today, ha- in our culture, that's you and I, is we, we call ourselves employees. And we go to work, and we're expected to work within a certain parameter. And sometimes bosses make us work extra hours, and sometimes we get paid for those extra hours, sometimes we don't get paid for those extra hours. But if we work over 40 hours, we point to the federal government and we say, hey, I'm entitled to extra pay. That is not the culture Christ is referring to or speaking into at all. In fact, the furthest thing from it. And as I've traveled around, I get the privilege of of traveling, and I've seen other cultures, and I've seen the master-servant relationship in different cultures. And this relationship is, is similar to that of a master and a servant in Morocco, for example, or in the Middle East, Uganda, Sierra Leone, all these other areas where the government doesn't give employees a lot of rights. And so that employee has to work from before the a.m., making, making meals, all the way well into the evening. They work. They get the same pay whether they work that full day or not. They don't get any bonuses. They don't get days off. That's the servant context that Jesus is speaking into. And so you've got to, you've got to try, and, try and understand the disciples who he's talking to don't see the servant as having rights. It's not something they have. They see the servant as, that brother's got a job. That's good. That's a good thing. And that servant sees it as, wait a second, did he just say after I feed him, I get to eat? That's what the servant sees in other cultures. And that's not how we, we view things. And so if you're reading this and you're looking at that servant and you're feeling sorry for them, you're not seeing it correctly. This dude's got a job and he works hard. He's welcome in at the end of the day and he cooks for his master and he gives his master food and something to drink and once his master is satisfied, he knows he gets to eat. And that's a good thing. That's good news. He's got a job and he's grateful for it. That's the culture we're talking about. So no workman's comp claims coming out of this uh, section of Scripture, guys. All right. So he says, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once, sit down and eat? Like, let's go. I want to make sure that you're taken care of. The assumed reply from all the apostles is none of them. None of them are raising their hands saying, oh yeah, that's me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit. The assumed reply is zero. Zero of them are going to offer that to their servant. Verse 8. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Now at this point, all the apostles say, yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a good, that's how, that's how it goes down. Yep, once the master's eaten and master's drank, then we get to eat. Okay, so they're in agreement with Jesus. They're following, they're tracking with Jesus at this point. Now, where our culture and our heart comes into conflict, verse 9, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Jesus answers 
this question? I don't think so. Our culture really conflicts with that, that thought right there. What? Not even a thank you? Brother's been plowing all day? That is not easy, right? Tending sheep, they kick, they bite. Stinky. There's wolves out there. That's not easy. And to not get a thank you? No recognition. What is a thank you? A thank you is stopping and saying, I see what you've done and I appreciate it. And I want you to know that I appreciate what you've done. Right? And so I'm going to say thank you. We say it all the time here. That did not happen in Jesus' day. You didn't walk up to someone and just say, thank you for bringing me tea. It was not the case. You, that was their job was to bring tea. They would set it down and they would walk away and you don't say anything to them. In Morocco, I noticed that. Robert and I went to Morocco. It's been over a year now, but we were at a tea shop. And here's Robert and I, the two Americans, saying, oh, thanks, this tea is so good. And they're like, yeah, whatever. Okay. And they walk away like, Who are, what are you talking about? Of course our tea is good. But we've erred on the opposite side as a society of overthinking. Like we are like uber thankful. And I mean that. I'm dead serious. When a person does their job and we stop them and say, thank you for doing your job, we are actually doing harm. Saying thank you can actually be a harmful thing. Because we're teaching people that every little thing they do, they need to be stopped and recognized for and applauded for. We see it happening as we raise kids in this society. People have said that this is, this recent generation is the most entitled generation to ever walk the planet. Have you heard that? Have you observed that? I have too. I've, and I've been around for one generation, so I should know. Okay, I don't know. How I, yeah, yeah, you're right. The most entitled, I don't know. Okay, but here's the thing. We are doing something wrong when every time someone does what they're supposed to do, we applaud them. It's, it's not right. It's actually not really dignifying. I remember when my kids were young, especially in their early years of sports, it, they couldn't do anything wrong. Like it was all positive. Even the way we train dogs nowadays is positive. We're giving them awards for wagging their tail. You know, everything we do is positive. And there's a better way. Yes, thank you matters. Yes, I love hearing thank you. I feel obligated to say thank you. I think we should show appreciation. But when, when the kids are playing sports and we are, are cheering them on, and you, I remember asking, hey, what's the score? And people were like, we don't, we don't keep score. Like, what? And I know that that's not true. We're all keeping score. They're, they're not telling the truth. This is about just having fun. Oh, we're keeping score. But what's happening is we, we're emphasizing good things, but what we're not emphasizing is the better things. We're missing out on the better things. Integrity and dignity. And Jesus is pulling aside his disciples, 
And he's going to hold them to a standard that preserves dignity, preserves integrity. And so, yeah, the, the, the ask, the commands of the Lord are huge. Forgive and keep forgiving. Work, and then when you're done working, work a little more, and then we don't get a thank you. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. When I was 20, I had a job in injection molding. I don't know if you're familiar, but everything plastic is pretty much injection molded. And my boss was a great guy. And I got to a point where I could operate any of these machines, and they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I could dial them in down to the thousandth of an inch and and make everything work. And one day, I was working, and my supervisor said, dude, you got to cover everything. Medical emergency, he had to go home. And so I ran the whole plant at the age of 20 by myself. And when I was done, I was like, yeah, I'm pretty awesome. And my boss needs to know it. So not long after that, I decided, well, if I can do what my manager does, well, then I deserve recognition and, and, and a raise. I'm going to be honest. I wanted a raise. And so I went to my boss, and I don't remember. I was trying to remember what I made, but it was around eight eight fifty an hour or something like that, and I wanted to go to $10 an hour, and I was dating a girl, and, you know, I was like, man, if I had 10 an hour, I could probably get married, you know? And it was the 1900s. Simpler times, people. Simpler times. And so... I went to my boss, and I presented every reason why I, I should get a raise. And I, and I pointed out the whole story of my manager leaving and how I kept production going. He didn't lose a penny. And he looked at me, and he said, you're supposed to do that. And I was like, ouch. And he said, I don't have money to give you a raise. And I did not respond well. I didn't get mad at him or, or lose it, but in my mind, in my heart, I didn't say what I wanted to say. Thank you, Lord. But my heart was wrong. I was entitled to more. I was entitled to more. If I can do what my manager can do, well, then I'm entitled to my manager's pay. That was my heart. And Jesus is trying to protect us from that. And here's why. I'm going to read to you a scripture, just the chapter before, in chapter 16. Chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you trust in, and, excuse me, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? It's about true riches. God is going to provide a meal for me until the day I die. And whether that's through with working with somebody who doesn't see and doesn't appreciate what I'm doing, or whether it's working for somebody who says thank you at the end of every day, At the end of every day, all I'm doing is earning money to sustain my well-being and pay pay the bills and feed my family. Things I should be doing. 
But I forgot that this job thing, it's all a means to which God can entrust me with true riches. And that's what this is about. It's about the true riches. So it doesn't matter how terrible your boss is or how wonderful your boss is. That person, in God's eyes, is a doorway through which you can be entrusted with true riches. It's not about money. God has all the money in the universe, right? He can give it. He can take it. But this is about true riches. Matthew uh, 25 Verse 21. This is the parable of the talents. The master leaves three guys with their talents. The first two get a passing grade. And the, and the Lord says to him, His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the true riches. And so it doesn't matter who your boss is. It may irk you that you're earning money for somebody who's going and spending it on things that aren't even biblical, righteous, just, or godly. That may be the case. That person is an opportunity for you to prove yourself faithful in something as little as making money, because that's all it is, is making money. It comes and it goes, right? So quickly. And it's an opportunity for you to be entrusted with true riches. Every day you go to work in that job, whether you love it or don't, I want to encourage you, it's an opportunity for God to entrust you with the true riches, the things that actually matter. And it may not ever happen at work, but the true riches are the things of God, the heavenly things, the things that never perish, the things that are eternal. And I, I, as a missions pastor, I hear a lot of people who have a heart to do ministry. Usually, they, they contact the front desk, and if, if it's a new ministry, Rhonda says, you need to talk to Dan, and I get a message. About six weeks later, I actually get that message. I'm just kidding. No, I'll get the, I'll get the call. And they're talking about things that are true riches. Widow's ministry working with men's ministry. People who call and they say they have a burden to, to see men be, live pure lives. People call who say they have a burden to empower and equip people to do foster care. Those are the true riches. And what God is saying is, I bet you right now, it's already on your heart, this ministry, this idea, this concept, and you're not doing it. And what God is saying is, I want you to do it once you're faithful with the, the temporary little thing called earning money. And it's real simple. And what does it look like to be faithful to earn money? Somebody, you, your boss isn't friendly. Maybe you have, an, every time you have an idea, your boss shuns you, laughs at you, and then secretly goes and shares that idea to their boss, and they get all the credit for your idea, right? Those things happen. They, they happen in ministry. They happen all over the world. Maybe that's the case. But at the end of the day, if you at some point in time say, I am done, I'm done giving my ideas to this guy, I'm done working hard, I'm done with the extra hours, I'm, I've, I've plowed all day and he wants me to do this, no way, 
I'm not going to do it, then you've checked out and you've disqualified yourself for true riches. Because the money that this guy makes off of you doesn't matter in God's eyes. What matters to God is he's equipped you and gifted you and put you in a place to be the best Christian you can possibly be, even if that means an evil person is blessed as a result. You're still obligated to be the best employee you can be, right? And so God can say, you've been entrusted, you've been faithful in something that is short-lived, ephemeral. That's one of the words I remember from college. You've been faithful in the ephemeral. I'm going to give you the eternal. Right? And so I want to ask you guys, and I want to challenge you, has your heart checked out of your work? Are you withholding what could be a real blessing for your employer because your employer is a jerk? (laughs) Are you withholding that? Don't do it anymore. Give it. Give them everything. Every good idea. Let them take it. Let them steal it. Let them go all the way to Wall Street with it. It's okay. It was just an idea, and it's just money. But it's an avenue to true riches. So get all in next time you drive into work. Tomorrow morning, if that's your morning to go into work, be all in before you walk in that door and say, Lord, I'm all in. I want to do something amazing for my employer. I want to blow their socks off. And I I just want to go 110% because this is where you have me. And then let the Lord entrust you with the true riches. Amen? Okay, where were we? Okay, I'm just <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay, so Jesus is confronting our entitlement. And we're comparing cultures, and he's giving us a secular, a very secular analogy, which is very fitting for us today. So in verse 9, we read that he says, does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. And if we haven't received recognition, well, let's continue to serve faithfully. Because that recognition is entitlement. And entitlement competes with integrity. Entitlement always robs from integrity. Okay, let's look at entitlement here real quick. Luke 15, we've got the the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal comes to himself, literally comes to his senses, and decides to return home to his father. We'll pick up in verse 27. Hmm. Okay, let's go, let's go to verse 25. The prodigal son has a brother, and that brother has, is going to have a run-in with entitlement. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. So the, the son who never left is coming home from a day's work, and he hears music and dancing. Verse 26, so he called one of the servants and asked what, the, what these things mean, meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now, speaking of the older brother, but he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. The brother answered, And said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, 
I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. Entitlement. Wait a second. So you're receiving this sinner who wasted all of, all of his inheritance, insulted you, shamed you as a father, lived a sinful life. He comes back. You kill the fatted goat, fatted calf, fatted goat for him. But you know what? I have followed you this whole time. I have not shamed you by asking for my inheritance. I've not shamed you publicly. I've followed all of your commands, and you've never once killed a fatted goat for me that I could celebrate with my friends. Can you relate to that, dude? You know, we can go many, many years in our walk with the Lord, and we have an expectation of him that he has no intention of meeting. Do you have unmet expectations in the Lord? Are you holding the Lord hostage to a promise that for some reason you're holding on to that he may never actually fulfill? Not in, not in this lifetime anyway. Judas ran with Jesus his three years, and he had his own personal agenda, right? He had his, his own expectations of the Lord, and the Lord didn't fulfill his expectations, and Judas turned on him, right? This happens a lot. People who are Christians, they walk with the Lord, they come to church for a long time. Somewhere inside of their thoughts and inside of their heart, they have an expectation of the Lord, and it's not met. And when they see someone else receive something from the Lord, they feel entitled. And if they don't get what they want, they go on to a different church, or they they leave the faith entirely. This can happen. There was actually a survey done of a ton of teenagers who had committed themselves to Christ. These are this is actually Chinese teenagers committed themselves to Christ and actually committed themselves to purity and then at, at a huge conference and then years later thousands of these kids were followed up with and only a few of them still followed the Lord. And after serving them, why did you leave your faith? Why did you leave Christianity? They said, because I was told if I live a pure life, I'm going to be blessed. And I wasn't. In fact, life got harder. They had expectations of the Lord that the Lord has no intentions of actually fulfilling. I was told that if, if I was observing all of the commandments, well, then I'm going to prosper. And here I am. No one's killing a goat for me, and no one's celebrating me, and I'm working all day, and I'm not even getting a thank you, right? And that's what happens, and that's what can happen to us, to all of us. That can happen in our marriage. That can happen with our children. We have expectations. And we're told, as a father, there's all kinds of resources for me on fathering. And I'm told to follow these steps in my fathering program. And i got to tell you, I find myself empty at the end of it <laughs> because... I have teenagers. So, (laughs) no. None of the programs. The program, the the answer isn't in following a program. And God isn't accountable for our expectations when he doesn't meet our expectations. 
And sometimes we can say, you know what? I'm checking out. The Lord hasn't met my expectation. When the 70 were sent and they came back saying, hey, Jesus, this was awesome. We cast out demons in your name. We healed people in your name. And they had all of this great experience because they went out and served the Lord. That was one thing. They went out and served the Lord and experienced a powerful God. But Jesus, even, even when things were great, said, hey, be careful. I saw Satan fall like lightning from, from, from heaven. Don't get caught up in the expectations. Don't get caught up in the miracles. Jesus said, a fly. This is weird. Okay, so Jesus says to them, hey, be careful that you don't get prideful. But rejoice that your name is written in heaven. That's it. That's our promise. We're going to go to heaven. Our promise isn't that we're going to have a great boss. We're going to find that perfect career. We're going to do that thing that really fills our heart. No. Our promise is that we're going to go to heaven. And it's eternal life. Right? And so unmet expectations can lead to entitlement, and entitlement robs from integrity. So, I don't know, I've never personally experienced a work environment where I wasn't recognized and I wasn't thanked. I can't speak personally from that. Everyone I've ever worked for has, has been an American, and they, they take time to stop and say, hey, good job, thank you for your work. But Jesus is saying, even if they're not saying thank you, even if you're not being recognized, you give them everything you got. Because it's not about money. It's about true riches. Verse 10, So likewise you, when you have done all those things which were commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. That's integrity. That's dignity. Jesus is saying this, Dads, I mean, if you want to lose your integrity, you want to lose your dignity, start bragging about feeding your kids. Everyone's going to say, you're supposed to feed your kids. A police officer. Nothing is sadder, and I have, actually I've never witnessed it because it's so ridiculous, but a police officer bragging that they saved someone's life. They're supposed to save lives. We are on the 18th anniversary of 9-11, and I'll never forget, and never forget watching those videos. I know you won't either. But I'll never forget uh, uh, this big, burly, strong fireman. And they showed a video of him walking into one of the towers. And he sees the stairs. Crowds are running out this way. And he's going in to a burning inferno. Burning tower, right? And he's got oxygen. He's, I don't know how much weight he's carrying. And he's going to run up 80 flights. And he gives his life to do it. Not even that guy, not even that guy can say, God, you owe me. Even he, at the end of his life, when he's standing before the Lord, is going to say, God, I did what I was supposed to do. Right? That word un unworthy, unprofitable servants, 
That word is used one other time, and we just referred to it in, in uh, Matthew 25, and it's about being worthless. Jesus is saying, one author said, Jesus is calling us to the epitome of humility. That's what he's calling his disciples to do. The epitome of humility. And that is to say, hey, when I've done everything God has told me to do, my response is going to be, I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm only doing what was my duty to do. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not easy to have that attitude in, in a rough marriage. It's not easy to have that attitude in a, in a rough employment situation. But Jesus is saying, that's the attitude of a disciple. Because it's about something different. It's about true treasure. And we've been entrusted with it. So I want to challenge you guys. I want to ask, as I've run out of time, that you would seek the Lord and say, Lord, where am I, where am I holding entitlement? Where am I entitled to something that you're not, you've never promised and you're not promising me now? Where am I holding you captive to, to something that you're supposed to do in my marriage, but you're not guaranteeing you'll do it? Where am I saying, okay, I'll do six more months of this, but not a second more. I'm drawing the line at six more months, and if he doesn't change, I'm out of here. Ask the Lord. If you've gone from employer to employer to employer to employer, it may mean that God wanted you in front of a lot of employers. It also may mean that you need to stop and recognize it's not about the money. It's about true riches. Amen? So let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for... Uh, just your word and your truth. And Jesus, you do not uh, hold back. You speak truth straight to our hearts. And God, we just ask that you would teach us how to live a life that's not entitled, how to live a life that doesn't need a thank you. Lord, show us in our hearts where we are taking credit and exalting our own image and our own name over things that we're supposed to do. Lord, would you reveal to our hearts where we're taking pride in things that we're just supposed to do? things everyone is supposed to do. Lord, would you convict us of places where we've given up or where we've checked out, where you are telling us, no, you can't check out. You need to invest. You need to be all in. Lord, allow us to walk a life that is worthy of the true riches. We want to be entrusted with the true riches. We don't, at the end, want to have this whole life summed up into a few dollar bills that came and went. Lord, we want to be known as people you can trust to be faithful with the things that really matter. Eternity, the gospel, souls being saved. Lord, the true riches. I pray you'll speak to our hearts and bring us to repentance. Cause us to be born again anew in the things you've called us to do. Give us new life once again and refresh us in the daily walk that you've given us. And Lord, remind us that everything we do can impact eternity. Every breath we take actually truly matters on an eternal level. And Jesus, fill us. Father, would you have grace for us and forgive us and teach us like you taught your disciples. Give us understanding. 
Lord, we love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.